morning, everyone. You guys can have a seat. If we haven't met before, uh, my name is James. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Now, each week, uh, my wife Shannon and I, we host a home group. And last week after the home group, uh, my sister-in-law, Rebecca, was pregnant right now. She pulled out uh, a bag of clothes that she had bought that afternoon shopping for the baby that's coming in a few months. And as she pulled out the bag, she asks the question, who wants to see the clothes I bought for the baby? And all of the girls responded in unison, yes. And I was like, nah, because I really, it's just clothes until the baby is in it. Now, I do kind of understand the excitement uh, that, that girls do get when they look at a piece of baby clothing, because you're, you're looking as something that is going to be filled by a tiny human in a few months. And there's a lot of excitement, anticipation, and speculation uh, around the birth of a child. Um, I think about for my wife and I, as we were waiting for our son, a son to be born in those months leading up to it, we'd have conversations about whose personality we take after. We'd talk about what he would look like and how our lives were going to change drastically once he came along. But we didn't know with certainty what, what he would be like or what our lives would be like afterwards. All we could do is guess and speculate. And that's all you can do until you hold the child in your arms, until you get to see their personality develop with time. Well, today we're in chapter 5 of the story, and I think we need to look at this chapter through a similar lens. Because the Israelites, last week we learned, they've been in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. And in that time, they've probably heard about God, but they might not really know God. As we learned last week, God hears the cries of the Israelites while they're in slavery. And he sends Moses, and Moses comes to Pharaoh and he says, you need to let God's people go, and Pharaoh won't. And through ten plagues, and the final one being the Passover, Pharaoh was finally like, yes, take the Israelites, leave tonight. And so they're going, and they head to the Red Sea, and they look back, and there is Pharaoh's army. But God performs this mighty act where he divides the Red Sea, and the Israelites walk across dry land. And Pharaoh's army is wiped out as they follow in. And so where we pick up this week, we see that the Israelites are in the desert the desert of Sinai, and they arrive at the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. And here, they're going to be introduced to the God who has delivered them, who's performed mighty acts. Now, while they were in Egypt, as I said before, the Israelites, they probably heard about God. They probably heard stories of God as they gathered for dinner or as they were around the fire at night. For, for my family, um, my father-in-law, the lead pastor here, when we gather at their dinner table, the stories just start coming out. He'll, he'll tell stories of growing up on the farm on PEI. Many of you guys have heard those stories, I'm sure. He'll talk about how uh, they had one phone line amongst several homes in the community. They shared a party line. He'll talk about how he joined a record club, and he'd mail away, and they'd mail him records back. My favorite is when he starts talking about attending a one-room schoolhouse, which makes him sound super old. <laughs> but as he tells these stories, we, we, we laugh with him. We often laugh 
are stories um, of a time that, that seems so long ago. It's something that we will never experience ourselves. And so it's just kind of a neat thing to hear about. And so for the Israelites, you can imagine as they're gathered around the table or around the fire, uh, the older members of the family, they start saying, our ancestor Abraham, our ancestor Isaac, our ancestor Jacob, God spoke with them. He made uh, a really important promise to them that we would become a great nation one day. But now the Israelites, being in slavery in Egypt, they're probably going, nothing came of that. They're probably going, this God that we hear about, what's he doing in our situation? And they, they really probably can't see how God was working in their situation. Now, while in Egypt, images of the gods of Egypt would surround the Israelites constantly. There were over 60 different gods and goddesses in Egypt. All had different purposes, and they all had different reasons why they existed. But there was images and carvings of these gods everywhere. And so for the Israelites, they would be surrounded. They were immersed in this idolatrous, this polytheistic culture. It's kind of like when you walk through the food court at the mall. As you walk through the food court at the mall, you, you smell the aroma. And you, and you can see all the different foods. And it's hard to walk through the food court without wanting to eat, isn't it? I mean, I, I go through the doors, I smell pretzel maker, and I just want to be like, take my money and give me pretzels. But as you walk through the food court, you see people, they are enjoying their food. You smell that aroma, you see the images of food on plates, you see all the different options that will tailor to what you want. You can have it, anything you want, basically, have it your way. And so you're surrounded by this. It's hard to not want to indulge yourself, to, to eat this food. And so think about this for the Israelites in Egypt. They're surrounded by several different gods and goddesses. They would probably want to partake a little bit. It would be hard for them not to be affected by this. Their culture, their worldview, the way they worship would all be affected by this. Now, as we said, Israel has just arrived at Mount Sinai, and God tells to Moses, get the people ready, because I'm going to reveal myself to them. I'm going to show them who I am. And so Moses does this. He prepares for God to, to speak to the people. He prepares for God to reveal himself to them, to make promises to them, and they will become his people. And as they're at the base of the mountain, this, this dark, dense cloud comes and settles over the mountain. There's thunder, there's lightning, the ground trembles as God's presence settles over the top of Mount Sinai. And then God speaks to the people. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2 and following. God says, I am the eternal your God. I led you out of Egypt and liberated you from lives of slavery and oppression. You are not to serve any other gods before me. You are not to make any idol or image of other gods. In fact, you are not to make an image of anything in the heavens above, on the earth below, or in the waters beneath. You are not to bow down and serve any image, for I, the eternal your God, am a jealous God. And God is stating it right here. I am the one who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. 
He's making it very clear that he's the one who's done those mighty deeds. And over and over and over again, to the Israelites and throughout the New Testament, God is saying, I brought you out of slavery. God also gives the Ten Commandments in, in the following verses. He also gives the Book of the Covenant. And in this, God is showing the Israelites what kind of God he is. He is a good, holy, and moral God. We see this in his commands. And so he says, if you are going to be my people, you must be holy as I am holy. Now the Israelites, they, they hear all of this, and in Exodus 24, verse 7, they respond to this. They say, we will do all that the Eternal has said. We will obey every word of his command. And they're basically saying, God, we will be your people, and you will be our God. They've made an agreement with God. They're going to be devoted to him alone. They're going to reflect his character in their relationships with him and their relationships with others as the Ten Commandments and the law lays out. And things are going well, and soon God calls Moses back up the mountain again. And Moses enters into that dark cloud to be with God. And he's up there for 40 days. And during that time, God gives Moses two stone tablets in which God himself has inscribed the Ten Commandments. He also gives some specific instructions on how to build the tabernacle or this portable tent of worship in which God would dwell and, the, and God's people would worship him through sacrifices. So, Exodus 29, verses 45 to 46, God lays out his plan or his intentions through this. He says, I will live among the Israelites and be their God. And they will know that I am the eternal, their God, who led them out of slavery, or sorry, led them out of Egypt so that I could live among them. I am the eternal one, their God. God's plan, I will live amongst the Israelites. His presence is going to be in the, tab or in the tabernacle where he will dwell amongst the Israelites. He is their God and they are his people. This is their agreement. This is their relationship. Now if we could end the story here, it would be a nice story. God sees his people in slavery. God's heart goes out to them and he responds and he delivers them out of slavery in Egypt. He brings them towards the promised land, and they become his people, and they say, we will do everything you say. If we could end it here, it would be a beautiful story. But if you've been following along with the story, if you're familiar with this, we know this is not where it ends. And in the first two books of the Bible, we've already begun to see a pattern emerge. God defines his expectations of man. God gives his commandments, and man hears them, and man says, I will do everything that you have said. But with time, with pressure, with an opportunity to fulfill, to fulfill our own desires, man goes back on his word. Man sins. There's often consequences. You see this take place with Adam and Eve at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God says, don't eat of that tree. That's the one command I've given you. Yet they say, yeah, we won't. But they go back and they eat of the tree. God says to Moses after he gets off the ark, he says, be fruitful, multiply, and rule over creation. And Moses, er, sorry, Noah is, is good, I'll do this. But then, soon, he gets drunk. Moses himself, this guy who walks and talks with God, 
is going to wrestle with listening to God here very soon. Now back in camp, while Moses is on the mountain, the Israelites, they feel that Moses has been gone for far too long. Forty days and forty nights. And so they speak to Aaron in Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 6. The people say to Aaron, We have no idea what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt. He left you in charge, so get up and make us gods who will lead us from here. I want you to bring me the gold earrings your wives, sons, and daughters are wearing, Aaron said. So everyone took out their gold earrings and handed them over to Aaron. He collected the gold, they brought it, and used it to fashion an idol in the shape of a calf. When the people saw the calf Aaron made, they were elated. And the people seeing the calf said, Israel, these are your gods, the ones who led you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw how the people responded, he built an altar in front of the golden calf. Aaron said, we are going to have a feast to the eternal tomorrow. Everyone woke up before dawn the next day and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar. When the food was ready, they sat down to eat and drink and then rose up to dance and play. And while God is speaking with Moses, he sees what's taking place back in camp. And he's enraged. They've already gone back on their word. And he lets Moses know what's taking place back in camp while he is gone. And not only has Israel gone back on the word, it hasn't even been six weeks. And they've taken all their gold, they've given it to Aaron, and basically they're worshiping a giant piece of jewelry. They're sacrificing, they're worshiping a piece of gold. It's going back on what God commanded them not to do. It's just a slap to the face of God. Now Moses pleads with God not to wipe the Israelites and start all over with him. And God relents and he gets back to camp and Moses sees that what God said is true. And in anger he takes the two stone tablets that God himself had inscribed the Ten Commandments on and he smashes them on the ground. And this represents that Israel has already gone back on their word with God. They've already broken their covenant Moses takes that calf and he throws it in the fire. He grinds it up and he pours it in their drinking water and he makes them drink it. And when Moses does this, he's showing how cheap, how fake, how fragile this thing they were worshiping really is. And Moses makes them remember their immorality, their idolatry as they drink this gold dust water. Moses then turns to his brother Aaron. And he says, How could you lead these people into such a heinous sin? What did they do to you? Aaron replied, Control your anger, my master. You know these people. You know how evil they can be. They told me, We have no idea what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us into the land of Egypt. He left you in charge, so get up and make us some gods to lead us from so I told them, if you are wearing any gold, take it off. So they gave me all their gold, and I just tossed it into the fire, and out came this calf. And in this sad yet somewhat comedic moment, Aaron is basically saying, it's not my fault. <laughs> I just threw some gold in the fire, this calf popped out, it's not my fault. Maybe 
least the God of the Jiffy Pop. We don't know. But it sounds like an excuse that a five-year-old would come up with. It's, it's a pathetic excuse. Now, worshiping the idol is not their only sin. What sacrificing this idol is not their only sin. In the Hebrew, when it says they rose up to dance and play, what it's basically saying is they got drunk and then they got busy. There was probably prostitution associated with this golden idol. There was probably rampant uh, sexual immorality, sexual orgies taking place in camp at this time. And so Moses sees the chaos that is taking place in camp. And he knows that it's doing damage to God's reputation. He knows that it's doing damage to the Israelites' uh, uh, relationship with God. And so he cries out, anybody who is for God, come to my side. And the Levites rally to his side. And Moses says, put on a sword, go throughout camp, and start striking people down. And the Levites do this. The tribe of Levi goes through the camp, and they strike down 3,000 people who are leading Israel in this immorality and this idolatry. And you can imagine that as 3,000 people die that day, it sobered up the atmosphere of camp. Well, Israel does repent from this, this moment of sin with the golden calf. Moses goes to God and pleads with God, don't leave us. We, we can't go on without you. And God says, I will still go with you to the promised land. I will dwell with you. And it's amazing that even after all Israel has done, in this moment where they blatantly disregarded God's commands, God will still be in relationship with them. 400 years later, Hebrew poets are still remembering this moment. And it's recorded in Psalm 106, verses 19 and following. The psalmist writes this, The people made a golden calf in Horeb and bowed down to worship an image they had made. They, tra they traded the glory of God for the likeness of an ox that eats grass. They forgot about God, their true Savior, who had done great things for them in Egypt, miracles in the land of Ham, and amazing deeds at the Red Sea. Look at verse 20 again. It says, They traded the glory of God for the likeness of an ox that eats grass. It's like the psalmist is saying, you traded the living God for a statue of a cow. Why would you ever do that? He's asking, why would you trade the real for what is obviously fake? Why would you do that? They opted for a piece of gold that they themselves had made out of their own hands. And when we look at the Israelites, we wonder, how, how can you blatantly disregard God's first command and second command? God was to be first in their lives. And they could see God there. They could see his presence on the mountain. They saw him lead them out of slavery in Egypt. They had seen his good deeds towards them. And they still served something that was fake. I think, though, we're a lot more like the Israelites than we would care to admit. We do grow up hearing about God. Often we hear stories of, of how God created the heavens and the earth. We hear stories of how God flooded the earth, but saved Noah in the 
We hear how God led the Israelites out of slavery towards the promised land. How God took down a mighty giant with a, with a young shepherd with just a sling, sling and a stone. And he made him a mighty king. We hear how God saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a fiery furnace when they refused to worship another god. Or how he saved Daniel in the den of lions. We tell stories of how Jesus came to earth and he was born as a human being. And he walked among us. That he walked on water. He, he made the blind see. He made the lame walk. We talk about how he died and rose again. We hear a lot of stories about God. But what we hear about God is often mixed in. It's twisted around. Or is drowned out by the idols of our culture. And the idols of our culture in themselves are often not bad things. They're neutral. They can even be good things. But we give them top spot. Fame, beauty, career, wealth, lifestyle, family, sports, popularity. And we're surrounded by a lot of things in our culture that say, serve me, that want to be top spot in our lives. In other words, we're tempted to serve a lot of other things before we serve God. And it's difficult in this culture because we're surrounded by things that, that look appealing. We live in a culture that says, have it your way. We have a lot of things that appeal towards us. But when Jesus tells us to love God with all our hearts, minds, souls, and strength, when Jesus says, you can't serve both God and money, when he says, in order to be my disciple, you must hate your families. You must hate your own life in comparison to your love for me. What Jesus is saying is your paycheck can't be more important than God. Your home can't be more important than God. Your family can't be more important than God. Your friends can't be more important than God. The person you see in the mirror every morning can't be more important than God. Getting up early to watch Team Canada play, that gold medal game cannot be more important than God. God must be first. Because if God is not first, we are serving something else in His place. We are enslaved to what we would say is a false God. And a false God can't deliver. It crumbles under the weight of being your God when pain and tragedy strikes. Our bodies age. The, the markets, they crash. Relationships, they fail. Our houses, they begin to deteriorate. Our cars, they rust. And when everything is falling apart, these things can't hold up. They can't deliver. They can't promise what God promises. When the fires of life come, and they do come, like the golden calf, these things that we put in the place of God, they're obliterated. They become dust, and they can't hold up. Everything else but God will fail you. Our story is very similar to Israel's. God sees us in the misery and our enslavement to sin. And He hears our cries. He sees how hard it is for us. And in great love, and in His grace, God sends His Son, Jesus Christ, to walk among us to live the perfect life, 
He sends Jesus to be that perfect Passover sacrifice so that we could be set free from our sin, so that we could live again. And God promises that you can be set free from death when he shows that his son conquered death by walking out of the grave. God then makes this promise that he will live with us and in us through the Holy Spirit. We become the new tabernacle. We become the temple of God where God lives inside of us. And he says, one day you will reach that promised land. You will reach heaven where we will live together for eternity. And I understand how crazy and how weird it sounds to say God will live inside of you. And I know it can be hard to believe, but I can't disbelieve it. Because I've seen too many lives changed to disbelieve it. When God takes up residency in somebody's life, they're changed. They become a different person. There is fruit. I've seen a selfish person become overly generous. I've seen marriages that are just on the brink of, of being over are entirely healed. They, they become healthy. I've seen people who are without hope find hope, find this zeal for life that is just contagious. I've seen people who are enslaved to different addictions just find freedom. I've seen people who are capable of great hate and great anger become capable of great acts of love. I don't know where you are in your relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't know where you are in your walk with God. But all of Scripture points to this truth. God wants to be with you. And that's why He sent His Son. That's why He sent His Son to walk among us, to die that perfect death, so that we could live with Him. I encourage you, look at Scripture. Look at Jesus. Maybe you have said to God, I will do everything that you command me. Maybe you gave your life to Him. You became a Christian. But it's been a few years. Things have come. Things have gone. And you find that God is actually not in that top place. You've been serving something much less than God. Maybe it's family. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's money. It could be anything. And they're not necessarily bad things. But God is not number one. You need to recommit your life to Christ. To God. To doing what He has said. But find comfort Find encouragement in knowing that it's not your work that makes you good with God. It's what Jesus Christ has done. And that is why you will live eternally with God in heaven. I want to encourage you to stand. And we're going to pray before the band comes up and leads us in a time of worship of our great God who delivers us from slavery to sin. It's a new time. Let's pray. God, we often look at scripture and we look at the stories that we see of people who, who talked to you, who saw your great deeds and then they mess it up. And we go, how could you be so foolish? How could you be so dumb? God was right there. But Father, our story is very similar. God, we have We've given up what is real to serve what is much less. What is 
something that just crumbles under the weight of being our God. And so, Father, we pray that we can repent of that, that we would make you number one. God, that our lives would be lived as acts of worship where you are number one in our lives. Father, we thank you for your Son who makes it possible that we can live eternally with you. We pray this in his holy name.